Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, my last podcast seems to have made the rounds. This was one of those audio essays, essentially, where I took the time to figure out exactly what I wanted to say. I tend to do a few of those a year, I think. Most of them tend to be PSAs, as that one was. Invariably, my wife, Annika, comes off the bench for these, because she is the best editor I know. And this time was no exception. The episode titled The Bright Line Between Good and Evil was considerably improved for her input. And I'm glad so many of you found it useful. I got an overwhelmingly positive response, I must say. I heard from lots of interesting people, CEOs and writers and scientists and just a great response. And today's conversation is on the same topic, but here I'm bringing in Yuval Noah Harari, who I'm sure all of you know. He's been on the podcast, I think, four times before. And as I joke at the end, we can never get to our topic of common interest, meditation and the nature of mind, because there are always so many pressing things in the world to talk about. Yuval's a historian, and a world-famous public intellectual. He wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus, as well as other books. His books are in print in, I think, 65 languages, which is astounding. And he also happens to be an Israeli citizen, so I wanted to get his perspective on recent events. We talk about what it's like in Israel now, how people are making sense of the failure of the IDF on October 7th, Uh, Netanyahu's contributions to the current crisis, along with those of the settlers in the West Bank. We talk about the ethics and geopolitical implications of the ground war in Gaza, how vulnerable Israel may or may not be to world opinion, the rise of global anti-Semitism, the state of Palestinian citizens in Israel, and the glimmers of hope to be seen there. We talk about the prospects of a two-state solution how Israeli and American weakness remains provocative, the lessons learned from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, how we might avoid World War III while shoring up the failing global order, and other topics. As always, the way to support the podcast is to subscribe at samharris.org. And now I bring you Yuval Noah Harari. I am here with Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval, thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. So, um, obviously, uh, you are um, a person uh, who has a, a relevant point of view on the current crisis in the Middle East. Before we jump in, r- r- remind people what you've been focused on these many years as a historian and, and a public intellectual. Well, I try to focus on the big picture of history you know, trying to understand how an ape from Africa took over the world mm. and uh, how now the, the, the future, the fate of perhaps all, of, all life depends on our species. And I try to understand the long-term historical processes. At, at the present moment, however, I'm focused on the immediate historical disaster unfolding all around me. I know from my line of work that it's usually not a good thing 
to be in the middle of a big historical event, mm. that when history comes knocking at your door, it's usually bad news. And, and history just didn't just come knocking at the door, it just broke the door. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is really the first moment since 9-11 where the intrusion of history has been so stark. I mean, this is by definition a very provincial view of things because obviously history has been hammering people all the while in other countries. But yeah. do you share that? Is that uh, in terms oh, of the, how it's punctuated your life? How many moments like this have there been? Actually, too many moments in, in, in recent years. Uh, it happened with the pandemic. It happened mm -hmm. with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the, the Russian invasion started on my birthday, the 24th of February, and it was like one of the worst days of my life. Uh, I, I, I don't live in Ukraine. I don't have relatives there. But I, I, I heard the news. Of course, I was following very closely what was happening there. And it, it really felt that history is taking a turn in, in the worst possible direction and that we will feel the repercussions all over the world. And I think to a large extent, what, uh, the war that started there is now reaching uh, my house. And if we don't change the direction that the world is going, then this, these, these kinds of events they'll come knocking at the door of more and more people all over the world. You know, put it very, very simply, we had a far from imperfect, but nevertheless functional, functioning global order. Mm. And over the last few years, this order has been undermined and destroyed. And when order is destroyed, what you get is disorder. Yeah. And this type of disorder and violence that we now experience here in, in Israel and in Palestine, I'm, I'm afraid that we will see it in more and more places all over the world. Well, I want to talk about that. I want to discuss just how fully the global liberal order has unraveled uh, in recent years and where all this might be headed. But let, let's start with the the more proximate problem of mm -hmm. the recent October 7th attacks in Israel and the, the resulting ground war in Gaza. Yeah. Where were you on October 7th? Actually, I was in, in Turkey on, on vacation, mm. and it was really almost surreal to hear the news and see the images that began streaming from Israel when I'm on a, uh, this kind of idyllic beach in, in, in Turkey. Yeah. And yeah, it, it hit very close to home. My uncle and aunt live in Kibbutz Beri, which is one of the communities that has been really obliterated by the Hamas terrorists. I have very good friends in another kibbutz in Kfar Aza, which was also obliterated by, by, by the Hamas. So it, it really, it, it felt extremely personal, everything that has been happening over the last few weeks. What, were any of your friends or family killed or taken hostage? Not in the immediate circle, but the moment you step, you take one step outside the kind of immediate circle of friends and family, you have so many horrible stories mm. about killing and kidnapping. My, my aunt and uncle, they, they were locked in, in their house. They hid in their house for hours as, as the terrorists were rampaging around and, and torturing and massacring their neighbors. Um, I just met two friends who were hiding in, their, in the safe room inside their house in Kfar, in Kfar Aza for uh, 30 hours, in, again, mm. in the most horrible conditions. And 
every day you keep hearing more and more stories about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's already clear that this day, which is, you know, the worst day in the history of Israel since its foundation, it's already beyond just history. It's already becoming a, a mythic moment that the people know that they, they lived, they have been living inside a mythological moment. Mm. That, uh, we don't know how people in the future will look back on it, but it is clear that it's going to be one of these moments that people keep going back to and retelling again and again for generations. Yeah, yeah, there's really no doubt of that. W- what is it like in Israel now? I- I'd-, I'd love to get your sense of the national mood and where people are in their grappling toward an understanding of how this happened. Well, you know, what would, I guess you can take it any side of this you mm-hmm. want, but I- I'm interested in what people make of the, the failure of the IDF what people make of how the chaos of, of Netanyahu's government mm. might have contributed to this problem. What is the feeling in Israel? And can you give me a sense of just kind of the political situation? Yeah, it's very difficult to say. There is a mixture of so many uh, different feelings, and it depends on who you talk to. But it's obvious that there is immense grief and pain. There is also immense rage at Netanyahu and at his coalition, it's clear to a lot of people that yes, there were immediate failures of the, of the military, but this was the result uh, really of 14 years of being ruled by a populist strongman who divided the nation against itself and put his personal interests before the national interest. Uh, you know, appointing people to key positions on the basis of personal and political loyalties and not on the basis of competence, Hmm. accusing the serving elites of the country of being these deep state traitors, you know, to to the degree that the very word elite, which is supposed to be positive, you know, Hmm. people who are foremost in uh, giving service to their country, in the military, in the universities, in judicial system or wherever, it became a pejorative term, as if there, there is something wrong with it. And especially over the last year, you know, trying to undermine Israeli democracy. And he was warned again and again and again by people in the army, in the intelligence, that this is weakening Israel at a very, very dangerous moment and distracting all the country and the security forces from the main threats. And it simply ignored all these warnings. And now we are paying the price for it. And I think this is a lesson that people all over the world should take to heart, uh, that if you vote for a a populist strongman like that, then uh, eventually there comes a day when the entire nations pay a very, very high price for it. Yeah, I I think uh, I could be forgiven for hearing a pretty spot-on description of Trump in your description of Netanyahu. I, I wasn't aware of how what a Trumpian figure Netanyahu was, not having followed Israeli politics as closely as I might have. I mean, th- there, is one, there is one big difference, that Israel is, you know, much, more, much weaker and more exposed mm-hmm. than the United States. There are the kinds of, I don't know, political experiments that people in other countries may have the luxury to, 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 to try, that Israel just doesn't have this kind of, 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 of buffer 
and it it was extremely reckless. And we are, as I said, we are now paying the price for it. Just so that I'm clear about the causality here, is it that Netanyahu drew so much attention to his own political needs and the divisiveness of that whole project, just shoring up his government, that it was such a distraction from the very real concerns of security? Or was it, it sounds like you're saying it was that, but in addition, it was also putting people no, in, it's, in it's power much... who, who, are, who, are, who are actually not competent because they, he, they, exactly. they were just loyalists to his it, regime, it's, essentially. It's much broader than just the destruction. I mean, what we've seen since October 7th is that even more than a month after the horrible attack, still many government departments are not functioning well. Uh, civil mm. society uh, had to fill in for a lot of dysfunctioning state agencies and, and government departments because of the, of the policies that undermined these state institutions for years. Another thing that we, we, that we see is that Netanyahu based his career for, for, for years on, on the idea that you cannot have any kind of peace process with the Palestinians. And he actually, and he said it openly, that he saw Hamas as a better partner of, of, of sorts than the Palestinian Authority, because with Hamas there was no danger that there is going to be any kind of peace process. Mm. So he, he openly talked about it for years that his policy is to weaken the moderate forces in, uh, among the Palestinians and strengthen Hamas. And this all blew up in our face on, on the 7th of October. And similarly, because of pressures from within his coalition, if you look, for instance, at the way the Israeli defense forces distributed uh, the, the uh, military units, there were just about two battalions guarding the entire border with Gaza, whereas something like 32 battalions were guarding settlements, mm -hmm. including illegal outposts in the occupied territories, which explains why on the morning of the 7th of October, there just weren't enough soldiers to protect the uh, uh, civilians in, in, in Kibbutzim, like, like the one of, of, of my aunt and uncle. Mm. When all the soldiers, or most of the soldiers, were in the occupied territories. Does it explain why it took so long for people to get to the south once the, the crisis began to unfold? I mean, how, how long does it take to drive from the West Bank to Gaza? I mean, you know, if, if you drive fast, you can get there in two hours or, or, or three hours. But, you know, to move a military unit is, 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 is a bit more complicated than that. Mm. Uh, the army got there, but just not in time. The Hamas mm. terrorists just needed a few hours in control of, uh, of these villages to simply go from house to house and torture and murder and kidnap everybody they found. Right. But uh, wasn't it a story of more like eight hours or 12 hours or 20 hours in some cases? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, again, within 20 hours, definitely the army was there. Mm. But once Hamas was in control of the villages, then you had to conduct a military operation. Yeah. And you had, you had thousands of Hamas terrorists. It wasn't just, you know, a few or, or, or 10 or, or 20. You have hundreds in some of the villages. Mm. So you had to conduct very difficult urban warfare, house-to-house -house warfare by the army when you also have Israeli uh, uh, civilians and, and hostages there. So the army had to be extremely careful, so it, it takes time. Mm. Can you tell me more about this, this fairly cynical game that, that Netanyahu played with 
the Palestinians with respect to encouraging the uh, Hamas, the, the far more extreme oh, ruling party, and also just the support of the settlements as well. I mean, that, that's also been provocative and decidedly unhelpful when, if your goal were a two-state solution. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Netanyahu's uh, uh, recent, certainly this government and also some of his previous governments were based on uh, an alliance, a political alliance with extremists who want indefinite Israeli control of the West Bank. So they saw any chance of a peace process with the Palestinians as a threat to their ambitions, which basically are, you know, coming from religious fanaticism. Uh, We also have our own messianic zealots, and they wanted full control of the territory far more than they wanted peace. And because of that, they saw the moderate forces within, uh, among Palestinians as a potential danger. Whereas Hamas, that you can count on Hamas not to initiate and not to agree to any kind of peace process. So for them, uh, Hamas looked like an uh, almost ideal partner that you can, they thought, you can let Hamas rule Gaza. Okay, you have some, some uh, occasional attacks and every year or two you have a bigger military operation. But on the whole, for 15 years, they just let Hamas control Gaza, turn it into a terror base and an Islamic uh, dictatorship, and uh, no chance of any kind of of, of peace process, while uh, they deepen uh, their control of the West Bank. And this was all based on a completely mistaken view that the situation can be contained, Mm. that Hamas will, will continue to play by their rules. So what's the sense among Netanyahu's critics that he should step down now? And, what's the, and, and to what degree do people think that it's more important to have the continuity of government now and to just wait until the, the immediate needs of the war are in the past before dealing with the, the political fallout for his failure? And because he's an extremely divisive figure. The, and, and, and the thing you need most in the country right now is unity. The ideal thing would have been for him to take responsibility for the catastrophe and step down. And, and, and you can do that in the middle of the war. Mm. You know, Chamberlain stepped down and let Churchill run the, the, uh, replace him in the middle of the war. One of the worst moments of crisis in, in the Second World War. If he thinks this is impossible, that he can't do it, he could still have said, I take responsibility for the catastrophe. I will step down once the situation permits it. I'm uh, declaring elections in six months, and I will not be running to these elections. Mm -hmm. So you can trust me now that no matter what I did in the past, now I'm fully committed only to the interests of the Israeli nation. And when this is over, I'm stepping down. This is the end of my political career. So you can trust me. And he he, is not doing it. Just the opposite. Mm -hmm. He tries constantly to shift the blame to other people especially in the military, and even in the protest movement. And um, there is no indication that he is going to step down or to call an election or to take responsibility on himself. You you mentioned the protest movement. This was in response to the attempted judicial coup prior to October 7th? Yeah, I mean, what we dealt with before, which now looks like ancient history, but it was just a few few, uh, months ago, was an attempt by the Netanyahu coalition to not just change the judicial system and neutralize the Supreme Court, it was an attempt to 
take unlimited power to their own hands. Uh, in Israel, we don't have a constitution. We don't have any upper house in parliament or anything like that. The only institution that could limit the power of a governing coalition was the Supreme Court. And they tried to neutralize or to take over the Supreme Court, which would have given them unlimited power to do anything they want, to rig the election, to disenfranchise, say, Arab Israelis, whatever. You name it, they could do it, with a minimal majority in the Israeli parliament. Mm. So uh, for months, you had the biggest protest movement in Israeli history, with hundreds of thousands of people going week after week after week to protests and demonstrations to stop that. And when the war erupted, something really remarkable happened, that while the government and many government agencies were completely paralyzed, the protest movement turned into uh, uh, the mainstay of much of the military effort from uh, you know, going to the south, to, to the, the area around the Gaza Strip, to help people and look for survivors, to organizing um, you know, places of refuge for Israelis. Israel now has more than 100,000 refugees internal refugees, people who mm -hmm. fled the border areas and lost their homes or had to leave their homes, and somebody needs to take care of them, and the government is not doing a very good job. So the protest movement stepped in. Mm. So yeah, many of these protesters were people who said that as reservists, they wouldn't respond to the call in protest. And then after October 7th, everyone just put their political differences on ice and, and responded, correct? Uh, absolutely. Again, and, and even before, I mean, it, it's not that the, the people in the protest movement said they will not respond to a call. They said if there is a war, we will respond, of course. Mm. But at the at situation that existed back then, they said we are not willing at the present moment to take orders from a government that is trying to assume dictatorial powers. So what is the view? Uh, I don't know if there have been recent polls that you might recall, or if this is, we would just be relying on intuition here, but what, what is the current state of public opinion around the settlers in the West Bank? And, and the, I guess I have an additional question, just what percentage of mm -hmm. settlers yeah. do you think are actually religious extremists, and what, what are people just looking for cheap land? I mean, what, what, what is the picture of that movement, and, and, and how it, it much patience is there for it yeah. in Israeli society? It seems that the, the only minority, I don't know how small, but a, a minority are these religious extremists. Uh, most people got there for, for different reasons. And also most of the settlements that are very close to the pre-1967 border. So in a potential future peace treaty based on a two-state solutions, they should not be an impossible barrier to peace. But you do have these more extreme groups uh, who, again, out of this messianic conviction, are not interested in peace at all. Mm. And they, they are dreaming about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and, and things like that. And in many cases, they intentionally undermine uh, relations between Israelis and Palestinians and try to do their, 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 their utmost to foil any chance for, for future peace. Well, I, obviously, I've done previous podcasts on the contribution, as I see it, of religious extremism to this problem 
on both sides, obviously far more focused on the problem of jihadism, both locally to Israel and and globally. I guess I'm interested in getting your sense of how vulnerable Israel is to public opinion internationally at this point. So the ground war has started. Mm-hmm. It has been a catastrophe as of a sort that everyone you know, would have expected and, and certainly Hamas expected and even wanted. I mean, they, they've done their best mm-hmm. to ensure that it would be a, yeah. a catastrophe. And I think many people wonder, and I'm certainly among these people, many wonder whether there was another way for Israel to have gone about destroying Hamas that would not have entailed seemingly doing exactly what Hamas wanted, which is mm-hmm. create a, you know, an intense amount of, of civilian injury and death in the process of trying yeah, to um, root them out. So what's your view of the ground war just as a concept and as it has unfolded in recent weeks? I, I can't really comment on, on what are what were the best operational plans to do this or that. I'm not an expert on that. What I can say is that um, anyone who is interested in peace should also be in favor of disarming Hamas. And I'm not sure what is the best way to do it. But without mm-hmm. disarming Hamas, there is not going to be any peace in the region. What people need to realize is that the immediate background to the horrific attack of the 7th of October that, that it is that we were very, very close to a historical peace deal. Israel and Saudi Arabia were in an advanced state of, stage of negotiations mediated by the United States. And uh, according to many credible sources, maybe we were just weeks away from signing mm. an Israeli-Saudi treaty, which should have not just normalized relations between Israel and maybe the most important Arab state, but also open the door to normalize relations with much of the rest of the Arab world. As part of this treaty, Israel was also supposed to make significant concessions to the Palestinians, and it was hoped that uh, it it would be also possible to restart the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Mm. Actually, Yuval, I just want to ask you about that point, because that's a point I I hadn't heard. It's often described that, that this peace treaty with the Saudis was an instance of Israel simply moving on in complete disregard of the Palestinian situation and that Hamas could have been expected to have, have uh, wanted to block that. But you're saying that there, was, there were concessions to the Palestinians built into that, those negotiations. Absolutely, because again, if it depended on the extremists in Netanyahu's government, that no, you would not have any concessions to the Palestinians. Mm. But of course, the treaty was negotiated not just by these extremists. Uh, It was very clear, not just from the Saudi side, but also from the Biden administration, that there would be no treaty unless it includes significant concessions to the Palestinians that were supposed to alleviate, at least to some degree, uh, immediately, the suffering of Palestinians in the occupied territories and uh, reopen the the, the peace process. And again, there was a lot of talk that Netanyahu would have probably to ditch his more extreme uh, allies in the coalition mm. in order to secure this treaty. But this was too big a prize. If this happened, this would have been Netanyahu's crowning achievement of his entire career. Mm. So uh, the, again, we don't know because Hamas intervened uh, that the possibility of this peace treaty was a deadly threat, both to Hamas and also to Iran. 
uh, Hamas's sponsor. Yeah. So the, the immediate aim of the attack was to foil, to derail this chance for peace. And the long-term aim was to prevent any uh, uh, restart, any chance for an Israeli-Palestinian peace even in the future. And this is why, and this is not the first time this is happening. I mean, Hamas, since its very foundation, opposed any peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. And every time there was a significant advance in the direction of peace, Hamas intervened in order to stop it. So if we want to have some chance of peace in the future, we have to disarm Hamas. Of course, simultaneously, we also have to give the Palestinians a different future to give them the possibility that they can see that if they choose a different path, they could live dignified lives in their homeland. And uh, this should be, I think, Israel's war aim to go back to the Saudi peace treaty and to restart the, the peace process with the Palestinians. Now, is the ground attack in the way it is conducted right now, is this the ideal way to disarm Hamas? And I, I just don't know. That, that's mm. beyond my expertise. But uh, without some kind of military measures, obviously Hamas is not going to disarm voluntarily. And m maybe I'll, I'll add to it something from, you know, the, the bigger historical perspective of, of what we are dealing with here. If you look, you know, at, at, at decades of, of, of this conflict, you see three big anomalies which are intertwined with one another and which make this conflict so complicated. I mean, at one and the same time, you have uh, the anomalous situation of Israel, which is one of the only countries in the world, which even though it's internationally recognized, most of its neighbors never recognized its, its right to exist. But most countries take their existence for granted. Mm. Israel doesn't. It's, it's, it's very right to exist. Forget about the exact borders. The very right of this country to exist has been denied from the moment it was created by most of its neighbors. Then you have another anomaly, which is the situation in the occupied territories, which is one of the only inhabited places in the world which no country claims sovereignty over. This makes the conflict very different from, let's say, what's happening in Kashmir between uh, India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. There you have a piece of territory that two countries claim sovereignty over. In the occupied territories, there is really... I mean, Israel never annexed the occupied territories. Formally, it doesn't claim that this territory is mine. It once belonged to Jordan, but Jordan renounced it. There is no Palestinian state. So it's really one of the... maybe the only inhabited place in the world that no country claims as its own. And then you have the third big anomaly, which is the situation of eternal refugees. That, you know, from all the tens of millions of refugees that were created, that existed in the world in the 1940s, uh, only the Palestinians are still here, and not mm -hmm. because the other refugees returned to the homes from which they were expelled. They were uh, uh, absorbed and resettled in whichever countries or territories they, 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 they reached. And what people often don't realize is that uh, there are more Jewish refugees after 1948 right. than uh, uh, Muslim refugees because Arab countries like Egypt, like Syria, like Yemen, like Iraq, 
uh, responded to the 1948 war by expelling Jewish communities that lived there for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. And most Jews in Israel, they are not what, you know, this, this, this fantasy of, of colonialists from Europe. They are not even from Europe. Most Israelis, most Israeli Jews are indigenous Middle Eastern people mm. who were expelled as refugees after 1948. So you have these three anomalies of that Israel's right to existence is not recognized, that the occupied territories, no country claims sovereignty over them, and this perpetual status of the Palestinian refugees. Ideally, you could solve all these three anomalies at one stroke, which is what the two-state solution was always meant to, to achieve, that you get recognition for the uh, Israeli, uh, Israel's right to existence, that you get a Palestinian state in the occupied territories, and that you solve the refugee problem by some of them coming back to this new Palestinian state and some of them getting citizenship mm. in countries like Lebanon, where they lived for, 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 for now for generations. Uh, whether we can reach this solution or not, that's, that's a very big question. Yeah, and, and even that would be to uh, that best case scenario, which I want to ask you if you can see a path toward it, but um, even that would be to enshrine the very anomalies you've just described. I mean, so, you know, is there another case of a country that was attacked on all sides and won a defensive war, in fact, two defensive wars, and the, the security buffer claimed in, the, in, in those successful acts of self-defense was then perpetually denied them as you know, they were treated, they're basically treated as aggressors even when they were, you know, fighting defensively and victoriously. I mean, is there another historical example of that? If they simply give back the West Bank and Gaza and return to, you know, mm -hmm. pre-67 borders, it's almost like they're not allowed to win a war of self-defense. I mean, I don't, I don't know, are, are there other examples of that kind of thing? I, I'm not sure. I mean, again, as a historian, I tend to, to, to be cautious about drawing historical analogies. Mm -hmm. um, what I can say again from a broader perspective is that in most ethnic conflicts around the world, both sides tend to be victims and perpetrators at the same time. Yeah. And this is a very simple and banal fact that for some reason most people seem incapable of grasping. That it's, it's very, very simple. You can be victim and perpetrator at one and the same time. Yeah. And so many people just refuse to accept this simple fact of history and, and think in binary terms that one side must be 100% evil and one side must be 100% pure and just, and we just need to find, to, to, pick, to pick a side. And this, of course, links to these fantasies of perfect justice, of absolute justice, which are, uh, this I can say from a historical perspective, they are always destructive. The idea that you can achieve absolute justice in, in this world usually or almost always leads to destructive places, to more violence and war, because no peace treaty in the history of the world provided absolute justice. All peace treaties are based on compromise. Mm. Some, you have to give up something. You won't get absolute justice th the way you understand it. Well, there are examples of really nearly miraculous examples of profound injustice rectified through violence that lead to 
a peace and, and, and reconciliation and even friendship that would have mm-hmm. seemed impossible. I mean, just look at the aftermath of World War II. I mean, we, we the Allies, dealt with the Nazis and the Japanese in the harshest conceivable way. I mean, killing civilians by the, the hundreds of thousands the necessity of that you know, certainly can be debated, but you know, I mean, we mm-hmm. we dropped two atomic bombs on Japan and rebuilt those societies and found in them enduring friendships. And he's even yeah. and even the Israelis, you know, and the the Jews of Israel and the Jews elsewhere view Germany now as a totally benign or being a better than benign uh, influence in the world. That's that kind of future seems impossible with respect to Israel and the Palestinians, and it, it, it really, it shouldn't be. But the one wrinkle that, you know, as I think you know, I, I focus on a lot mm-hmm. is the role that Islamic extremism, yeah. specifically jihadism and the doctrines of martyrdom, play here. And it's, it just seems, in terms of the kind of the, the ratchet of ideology and, and hatred and destructive, the destructive power of ideas, it is a kind of final turn to that diabolical machinery, which strikes me as worse than basically anything else that the, the human mind has produced. I mean, once you get a true otherworldliness, a true expectation mm-hmm. of paradise, it seems to me that all, all rational negotiation about the state of the world and any terrestrial demand that any group might make upon it, all of that goes out the window and you just have a death cult. So one anomaly I see here is that in dealing with a group like Hamas, which is, you know, arguably not as extreme as the Islamic State, but extreme enough to be a death cult, mm-hmm. the logic that most people try to lay over this current conflict simply doesn't work. So most people think in terms of cycles of violence, right? That, you know, the, yeah. And the point you just made certainly still stands that, you know, you can be both a victim and a perpetrator. So you're a victim trying to defend yourself rationally, and yet, of course, you're going to create casualties and you know, collateral damage and kill children on the other side. And mm-hmm. when you do that, you're going to make nearly permanent enemies of that population, and the cycle of violence will continue. Yes, that, we have that horrible dynamic also going, but in addition to that, we have people who simply do not care about the deaths of non-combatants. In fact, that's part of the, the plan. And in fact, their own deaths are also expected and part of the plan because martyrdom is sincerely believed in. And mm. so I'm just wondering what you, I mean, I, I, think, I think you would certainly agree that that level of extre- religious extremism is, is unhelpful. But I mean, can um, you imagine, I, I guess the only ray of hope I see here, and perhaps you can give me some perspective on this, is that there is a Palestinian population inside of Israel. There are Palestinian yes. citizens of Israel. Presumably, most of them, uh, you know, nearly all of them, are integrated into the society such that you can see a possibility where the Jews and the Palestinians live in peace in the same region. Yeah. Give me some sense of your optimism and pessimism about this whole gestalt. Okay. So, lots of things to say. First of all, yeah, you know, on, on October 7th, Hamas murdered and kidnapped not only Jewish Israelis, also Muslim Israelis. Hmm. Among the victims have been a significant number of Muslims who were murdered by Hamas, like an ambulance driver 
who, who try to rescue people and just, just, uh, just uh, uh, Bedouin civilians who live nearby and rushed to the place to try and save people and were murdered by Hamas. There are a couple of Muslim Israelis kidnapped right now in Gaza by Hamas. And the, what we saw was, you know, the unification of the Israeli nation in the face of this atrocity. Lots of people feared, and some people on the Israeli right claimed that we will now see an uprising of uh, Arab Israelis against the Israeli state. The exact opposite happened. Mm. There has been almost no incidents of physical violence by Arab Israelis. Uh, Instead, you saw people volunteering and helping to displaced communities in hospitals, in, in so many places. If you want really to speak with somebody who I think is one of the most hopeful uh, leaders on the scene, I, I, I warmly recommend you speak with Mansour Abbas. Mm-hmm. Mansour Abbas is the leader of an Islamist party here in Israel who was a member of the short-lived previous government, the uh, Bennett-Lapid government. I think it's the only case when an Islamist party was a member of a democratic government in a Western democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and it worked well. He's a very moderate leader. He made some of the sanest pronouncements that I've heard in recent weeks from almost anyone, anybody in the world about, about the conflict. And if, if we have more people like Mansour Abbas, I, I think there is hope. He's often called the bravest person in the Middle East. Yeah, I got to um, imagine he's he has his own security concerns. What is is the number one target? Yeah. of a lot of of, of people here. I, I'd, lo- I'd love uh, so, to speak so, with him. If I don't, I don't know if anyone on your side could help connect me with him, but I would love to speak with him. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm, I, I will be happy to uh, afterwards great. to try That's and great. connect. With regard to extremism, I, I fully agree with you that religious extremism. I mean, if you are, uh, uh, the, the one. The, the one, the, uh, the biggest reason for the horrendous cycle of violence in, in my region of the world is religious extremism. But as a historian, I would say that extremism of any kind mm. is, is dangerous. And what the 20th century showed us, that not only paradise in some other world can lead to murderous extremism, paradise on earth as the one imagined by yeah. Marxists and Stalinists has equal dangerous potential. I never understood how Marxists think about what happens to you after you die. And what's the point of dying for the revolution if you're dead and you can't witness the revolution? Mm-hmm. So you would think they would be less extreme than the jihadists. But if you look at the history of the 20th century in you know, places like the, the, the Soviet Union, then they give them a hard fight, I would say that, to, to the jihadists in, in terms of, of what they are willing to do. And in terms of, of hope and, 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 and justice and, and what you, we talked earlier about 1945 and the end of the Second World War. So the end of the Second World War did not bring absolute justice. If you think, for instance, about the fate of Poland. Mm-hmm. So in, in many ways, the Second World War, at least in Europe, started over Poland, protecting Poland from Nazi totalitarianism, and it ended with the Allies giving control of Poland to Soviet totalitarianism, because they really had no choice. And looking back 
most people, maybe not in Poland, but certainly in Britain or the US, would say, yes, this was the better option than to go to a third world war with the Soviets immediately over the fate of Poland and Eastern Europe. But the, there is, I mentioned Poland because there is a very hopeful story that most people don't know, because in history, very often, the hopeful stories get lost because they don't generate a lot of violence and bloodshed and death, so you don't hear about them. You know, when the Soviet bloc eventually collapsed in the late 80s, early 90s, everybody heard about the wars in Yugoslavia. And the impression of many people is that this was just inevitable because of the age-old ethnic hatreds and conflicts in, uh, in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. And people explain to you about how Croats and Serbs killed each other in the 1940s. And then when, when communism broke down, this frozen conflict was uh, defrozen and they continued killing each other. What people don't talk about is uh, the conflict between Poles, Lithuanians, and Ukrainians. In the 1940s, uh, there were ethnic cleansing and hundreds of thousands of people murdered, tortured, expelled from their homes in mutual conflicts between Poles, Lithuanians, and Ukrainians. And the arrangements at the end of the Second World War, they took many territories which previously belonged to Poland and gave them to Lithuania, the city of Vilna, Vilnius, mm -hmm. which is the capital of Lithu Lithuania, was part of Poland. It was a Polish city to some extent before the war. And in Ukraine, you had the same thing with all the territory around uh, Lviv or Lvov. Now, lots of people expected that with the end of the Cold War, the conflict between Poland, Lithuania, po Poles, Lithuanians, and Ukrainians will also be defrozen. And you would have this wave of wars as Poland tried to reclaim Vilnius and Lviv, and, and everybody goes back to the terrible memories from the 1940s. And it didn't happen. The Polish government mm -hmm. had a very conscious policy. It wasn't an accident. It was a conscious policy. They came to the governments of Lithuania and, and Ukraine and to the people, to the nations themselves, and they told them, we don't want to go back to the past. The past is gone, is done, it's over. We are focusing on the future. We do not want Vilnius back. It's yours. It's the capital of Lithuania. We do not want Lviv, Lvov back. It's part of Ukraine. That's over. We want to be good friends with you. And it worked. And when you look at the conflict now in Ukraine, and despite some hiccups, the Poland and the Polish people have been uh, maybe the, the greatest support, or one of the greatest supporters mm -hmm. of Ukraine, receiving millions of Ukrainian uh, refugees. And in the 1940s, this would have sounded unthinkable. Yeah. And this was yeah. a choice. And I think this is a choice in every ethnic conflict whether you look to the past or you look to the future. And I will say one more thing about it. As a historian, I think the curse of history is the attempt to correct the past, to save yeah. the past. If we could only go back to the past and save these people, and we can't. We can't go back to the past and save the people who were massacred on the 7th of October in Israel or go back to the Holocaust and say, no, it's impossible. And we can't go back to the past and try to do a different narrative. 
of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What yeah. we need to do is stop using the injuries of the past as an excuse for fresh injuries in the present, and instead think constructively about how we can heal the injuries and create peace, which will not give absolute justice to anybody, but will create better future for everybody. Well, one of the reasons why it's so untenable to continue trying to rectify the past is that, you know, by your description, every group has a partial but nonetheless accurate picture of the past wherein they are the victim and the other group is the perpetrator. And it's impossible to reconcile those two visions because they're mutually canceling. And it should theoretically have been possible. You know, this is what is known as theory of mind, Mm. that children beyond the age of, I'm I'm not sure which age, but beyond a certain age, people should have the capacity to go into the mind of another person and understand that she or he or him, they see reality from a different perspective than me. And this is the basis for all social relations. But unfortunately, there are many cases like the current conflict when theory of mind breaks down and it becomes almost impossible psychologically for people to realize that others see reality differently than us. To give you a glimpse of of my theory of mind, and and (laughs) this is how I sort of dissect out the layer of religious extremism of the Islamic sort that is riding over this entire catastrophe. I mean, so for instance, Mm -hmm. the Israelis have very little leverage with respect to Hamas now. I mean, it seems that Hamas doesn't care uh, in, in fact, wants them to bomb indiscriminately and kill lots of civilians. Mm-hmm. That yeah. works for their propaganda purposes. But they actually do have leverage. I describe this idea in no way endorsing it, and you'll, you'll see why in a moment. But they have a building. They have the Al-Aqsa Mosque that everyone really claims to care about. I mean, Hamas cares about it. Every jihadist organization on earth cares about it. Muslims everywhere care about it. Any group that could have leverage with Hamas, the, the Iranians or any other, any other group cares about it, they could say, listen, you know, we don't much like this building that you care so much about. If you don't return the hostages in 48 hours, we're going to demolish it. I, I, well, I just, I'll put it to you. What do you think would happen if they did that? Uh, the Third World War? Okay, so exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, literally... I would expect, and I think everyone would expect, not, not just a, a, you know, World War III or something quite like it, but they would expect buildings in London and Paris to also burn, right? I mean, just literally a, a, an uprising the world over of a sort that no one could possibly contemplate. So what we have, what, we, what we're all acceding to here is a picture of the Muslim community worldwide that is so combustible and it's so provocable on the basis of pure religious symbolism, right? It's not that they don't care when, when Assad kills hundreds of thousands of their fellow Muslims. There's not a single protest over that. They don't care when, when the Saudis kill over 100,000 people in Yemen. They really do care when the Jews start killing Muslims, as we see in Gaza. But they care even more about religious symbols. Right, they care about the mm-hmm. cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. That that's what causes embassies to burn in a dozen cities. And if the, the Israelis said, "Listen, we're so sick of killing your children 
we're just going to destroy this building uh, unless you give us our hostages back, that would be a provocation that would overturn this period in history. Yeah. So that is a completely insane and untenable status quo, right? I mean, my view is that the Muslim world has to figure out how to perform an exorcism on itself such that that is not the level of religious fanaticism, generally speaking, in the Muslim community in a hundred countries. We're dealing with the Christians of the 14th century. There's no other community that is combustible like this. If 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 the Israelis destroyed the Church of the Nativity, there wouldn't be a Christian uprising the world over, uh, and for good reason, because it, as, as sentimental as people are about it, it is just a building. So from my point of view, the underlying problem that we really have to deal with is there is an ambient level of religious fanaticism that is totally at odds with a pluralistic civilization in the 21st century, and we have to figure out how, how to release that pressure. Hmm. the operative pressure of that ideology and the commitment to it. And until we do that, that is always going to be casting a shadow over all of these kinds of moments. Yeah, I think basically what we can say is, is, is that in history, story matters. The, the, the stories in people's minds are often the most powerful forces that shape history, that shape politics and, 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 and culture. and. And this is a large part of what it means to do history, is to listen to the stories that people tell you. Now, you do have also dogmatic historians or dogmatic scholars in in, in other disciplines who have their pet theories about what motivates people. For instance, Marxist theories about material interests Mm -hmm. motivating or, or animating everything that happens in the world and no matter what people tell you motivates them, you say, no, 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 no. It's actually your material interests. You just don't know what motivates you. And yeah. I think part of what it means to be a historian is to accept the centrality of stories, of fictional stories, of mythologies, and to really make the effort to listen to people and to understand how they see the world, even if it's very different from how you see the world. Mm. And very often you find out that material interests are themselves shaped by religious or ideological or cultural stories of of different kinds. I mean, in in a completely objective way, people need very, very little to survive. They They need food, they need shelter, they need clothing, some medicines, and that's it. Certainly in the world today, you can provide this for for the whole of humanity quite easily. Most of the wars of the revolutions, that, uh, the conflicts we see in the world, they are not about objective material interests. Mm. They are about the fictional stories in people's minds. Again, even if you look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's not really about objective things like food or territory. Even though this is one of the most densely populated regions of the world, there is enough territory between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean to build houses and and schools and sewage systems and roads for everybody. And there is definitely enough food for everybody. People are fighting because they have conflicting stories in their minds, mostly religious stories in the case of of Israelis and Palestinians. Mm. 
but also other stories, and they can't find a story they can all be happy with. Yeah, although I, I would ascribe it to the greater influence of religious extremism on one side. I mean, to my eye, the conversation about the Jews of Israel among Palestinians, or certainly among the extreme groups like Hamas, but in the wider Muslim community, mm -hmm. has been all too often explicitly genocidal, right? And, and so that this mm -hmm. line that many people have repeated, which is, you know, if, if the Palestinians put down their weapons, there would be peace. If the Israelis put down their weapons, there'd be a genocide. I have taken that to be true, uh, notwithstanding the very hopeful sign we just uh, we discussed of you know Palestinians living well-integrated lives within Israel as Israeli citizens. So obviously, this doesn't refer to the extremism of, of every Palestinian, but there's just such yeah. a commitment to an, an anti-Semitic and triumphal vision of, of the future, which is we were, are finally going to conquer this land and not stop there, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think you, I'd be surprised if you disagree, but do you, do you have any marginalia you want to put on that claim? I'm not sure, again, I, I'm not an expert on uh, a culture or society either among the Palestinians or among the greater uh, Arab and, and, and Muslim world. So I'm not sure what are the percentages and of of, mm. of people who support such views. Uh, it does seem that there is a significant and influential percentage of of people who who does hold such views, but I I I don't really know. Mm. I I would say again that it's not it's definitely not something inherent. I would say in yeah. uh, Muslim culture or Muslim religion, because if you look at the at the long span of history in the region over the last, say, 2,000 years, for much of this period, Christianity was a much more fanatical and intolerant religion than Islam. That if you look at the situation in, in the uh, Middle Ages and even in the early modern period, you see people fleeing religious persecution in yeah. Western Europe to the relative safety and tolerance of the Middle East when the kings of Spain and Portugal expel their entire, I mean, give the Jews in, in Spain and Portugal the, the choice. Either you mm. convert to Christianity or you, or you go or, or we kill you. Then many of them, they go to the Ottoman Empire, which welcomes them with open yeah. arms. And this is the origin of Jewish communities in places like Istanbul, like uh, uh, Salonika and, and, and so forth. Benjamin Netanyahu's father is the great scholar of the Spanish yes. Inquisition, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And, no. you know, my own husband, his family name, he's from Egypt. Uh, his family is from Egypt. They, they are, uh, again, they became refugees after 1948 when the Jews of Egypt were driven out. After living there for, you know, for centuries and in millennia, Alexandria had a huge, was a huge Jewish center long before there were any Arabs in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And they were all expelled. And their family name is Rodriguez. And mm. Rodriguez doesn't sound like a very Egyptian name because no, they originally no. lived in Spain and they were expelled in 1492. And they fled not to England and not to France, which were at the time as extreme and intolerant as Spain, even more so. They expelled their Jews even earlier. They fled to a, a nice, tolerant place like Egypt. Mm. So things changed since the, the, the 15th and, and 16th century. And now the Middle East is, is far more extremist. But I mean, th this is a, a recent phenomenon 
I, I would say even of the last hundred years, like one of the things people often don't realize is that in 1900, at the beginning of the 20th century, depending how you count, about a quarter of the population of the Middle East is Christian. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense because, you know, Christianity was originally a Middle Eastern religion, not a European religion. Uh, and still in 1900, a quarter of the population, roughly a quarter, again, depends how you count and what you include in the region, is, is Christian. And then in a, in a, a relatively quick historical process, quick in historical terms, one Christian community after the other is annihilated or driven out, starting mm -hmm. with the Armenians and the Assyrians during the First World War. And until now, with the civil wars in Syria and Iraq, uh, with what's happening in Egypt, with the Copts, also with what's happening inside territories controlled by the Palestinians in, in Gaza and in, in the West Bank. Yeah. But this is a, a recent historical development. Until a very short while ago, there was a good case to be made that certainly for Jews, also for other religious communities, Islam is much more tolerant than, than Christianity. I would add some caveats there, but it's not important. I mean, it's certainly the relative broad, case. Broadly speaking, yeah. yeah. yeah broad, I mean, I mean, the by comparison cases, to the Christians of, of the 14th century, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So to come back to the present, I, I began to ask you a few minutes ago, and this actually, this is a yet another anomaly of the sort you need to add to the list. It, it seems to me that Israel, as a nation engaged in, in an act of self-defense, is held to standards that really no other nation is at the moment. And, and this is just by world opinion and world, uh, world scrutiny generally and, and officially at the UN. The very clear way to see this is Israel was condemned for its bellicosity and its uh, inclinations to perpetrate a genocide even before a single bomb fell on Gaza, right? I mean, there, was, there were already demonstrations in support of the Palestinians right after October 7th before Israel had done anything. And so that, that, that really was a tipping of the hand, and, and, and this, this, this would lead to a, a further question about how you view the rise of, of anti-Semitism globally at the moment, or, or the mm -hmm. exposure of the ambient level of anti-Semitism that was there. You know, Israel has been described as the Jew among nations in terms of how it's treated at the UN and the level of scrutiny of its actions, however justified. Yeah, you know, if you compare it to you know, what it was like for the, the Americans to wage war in, in Iraq, or Afghanistan, and you know all that was not said about the civilian casualties there. What what's your picture as of, as, a, as a historian and as an Israeli of this situation? I mean, I just I, you know obviously Israel should hold themselves to the highest standards of trying to protect civilian life, even as those civilians get used as human shields by Hamas. But it seems to me that they 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 just are fundamentally treated differently than other nations are in similar circumstances. Yeah, you know, w w when you hear somebody like Putin condemning Israeli atrocities against civilians and calling on Israel to show... And so th this is, of course, political cynicism at, at its worst. Mm -hmm. And um, some of it is it's just that. It's, it's just politics and the worst kind of politics. But, you know, what really concerns me is not when somebody like Putin says it, but it's when people who believe that they are in favor of liberalism and humanism and, and, and human rights 
uh, who sometimes hold these kinds of, of positions. And again, what, what's really disturbing about it is that it should be intellectually and emotionally not just possible, but even easy to hold a complex view that, on the one hand, condemns Israeli occupation of, uh, uh, of the Palestinians, mm. and at the same time, condemns Hamas as a terrorist organization and recognizes Israel's right to existence and the human rights of uh, Israeli civilians. You know, you listen to people who say things like uh, that they try to justify the Hamas atrocities by pointing a finger at the Israeli occupation. And you just don't need to, 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 to make this kind of link. Uh, you can condemn both. Mm. And the, the people who say, no, Israel has done such terrible things that it now justifies whatever Hamas does, these are people who don't really understand what human rights mean. They think that human rights depend on nationality, that only people of a certain nationality, they have human rights. But if you belong to a nation that you judge, that somebody judges to be guilty of certain crimes, then all the people who belong to that nation immediately lose, lose their human rights, and it's possible to murder them or kidnap them or torture them, and all blame is on their nationality, not on the terrorists or, or, or the criminals who are, who are doing these things. And again, it, it's, it shouldn't be so, it shouldn't be intellectually complicated to hold a balanced position and, and, and make these kinds of, 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 of distinctions. And I think the other uh, related issue is that people with very little knowledge of the actual historical facts, they tend to impose on the situation irrelevant models. You hear uh, very often, again, I'm not talking about Putin, I'm talking about people in American universities mm -hmm. and, and left-wing circles, that they try to understand the situation in terms of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And again, their model is like, I don't know, the French in, in Indochi Indochina or Algeria, the Dutch in Indonesia, things like that. And without realizing that this isn't colonialism, certainly not European colonialism, as I said before, first, Israel doesn't have a mother country. Uh, most Israelis are descendants of indigenous Middle Eastern Jewish refugees that were expelled from Arab and Muslim countries mm. in retaliation, in collective punishment for the Arab defeat in the 1948 war. Even those Jews like myself, whose ancestors came from Europe, they, uh, we uh, were not, did not come to Israel as the occupying force of some European empire, but as refugees fleeing fascism and Nazism and anti-Semitism in Europe, in addition, of course, to the fact that there was a considerable Jewish community living in the Holy Land for, for centuries. So you can still condemn the Israeli occupation and many of the things that Israel does, and I, I condemn them also myself, and I wrote and spoke about it extensively, without using this false model of colonialism, and without mm. denying the human rights of Israeli citizens or, the, or Israel's right to exist as a nation. Mm. Well, one of the things that has been most disturbing in the aftermath of October 7th was this eruption of anti-Semitism that we saw globally, and in particular in places where it really should seem unthinkable, like 
the campuses of our, our finest universities, you know, are, which are mm-hmm. dotted with buildings built by Jews. And it just, it seemed somehow impossible that you'd have, you know, arguably the most privileged people on earth, the, the students at universities like Stanford and Harvard and Cornell and Yale, marching immediately. I mean, in many cases, again, this was before, certainly before the ground war started and even before bombs began to fall on Gaza, you had, you had this kindling of protests which were explicitly in support of what had happened on October 7th, right? When some of the details were already known. I mean, it was not, mm-hmm. perhaps you, you could forgive some of these people for just getting caught up in the moment and not really knowing what they were signing on for, and much less what a phrase like from the river to the sea actually indicates. Yeah. But many of them had to know, I mean, because, you know, because I, I knew I was reading the newspaper and I was, I was seeing these protests through the lens of, of the information that was leaking out of Israel at that point. We knew what, you know, that this had been the deliberate massacre of non-combatants, including children. How do you view, I mean, I, I really, I mean, honestly, I, I, I was someone who, as a Jew, never thought about anti-Semitism, even though I, you know, occasionally, if, you know, in a professional capacity, you know, would, would think about it. But it, 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 the real threat of anti-Semitism globally seemed to be behind us. Yeah. And I just never, it, I, I never took it seriously, even though there were, obviously, there are neo-Nazis, you know, here and there who will espouse it. It's just, they're the fringe of the fringe, certainly in America. And, it, you know, the anti-Semitism that I saw on the left was really, if not much social or political consequence. But it's very hard to feel that now in the aftermath of October 7th. So I, I just, I wonder what's, mm. how, how do you understand the durability of this of this hatred and the, its shape-shifting quality, which it seems to be able to fit into any space provided, however bizarre the moral arithmetic required to make sense of it on the side of people who, sh- who should know better. Yeah, I mean, I, I was also kind of uh, really taken aback by, by some of, of the reactions, of the statements. Again, these are people who are supposed to be the intellectual vanguard of, of the Western world, of, of the liberal world. If this is the vanguard, then we are in deep, deep, deep trouble. And I, I would recommend to you maybe to invite a representative and, and try to figure out what, what's happening there. Because I don't want to kind of invent my theories mm. about what's happening in their mind and what psychological or sociological reasons there are for this phenomenon. I, I'm just really struck by the level of, I would say, intellectual and emotional laziness that, uh, that this manifests. Again, if, if you personally come from the region, let's say you go to Harvard, but you're born in Gaza, or you're born in Israel, or you have relatives there, or you have deeply researched the issue for years, then okay, that, that's a different issue. But the impression is that in many cases, people who have no personal connection to the area and people who have very little understanding of the situation have reached some very extreme conclusions. And, you know, people do it all the time, but this is why we have an intellectual elite. Mm. This, it, it, it's the job of thinkers, it's the job of historians and philosophers and, and sociologists to think much more deeply and to see the complexity of, of reality. 
And this felt, in, in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases, this really felt like betrayal. And I, I hear it from many people, especially in the radical left in Israel, that in addition to the devastation of, of, of the massacre and the war, they now face this kind of intellectual and, and emotional devastation of feeling betrayed by mm. people they considered their allies and friends. And, you know, th there is one story which, which just came to a very sad ending today. So it's, it's, it's really in my mind. A 74-year-old woman, Vivian Silver, she, she also was a member of the kibbutz of my uncle and aunt. Mm. And she, for many years, has been, have been one of the most prominent peace activists of Israel. Like many of the other people in these uh, uh, villages, in these kibbutzim on the border with Gaza, these were not settlements in the occupied territories. These were socialist communes established in most cases in the 50s and even earlier. And they were bastions of, of the left and the radical left in Israel and were leaders of many of the peace movements. And th this woman, for example, Vivian Silver, uh, part of what she's been doing in recent years was driving sick people from Gaza Mm. to hospitals in Israel to receive treatment. Yeah. And she went missing on the 7th of October. And just today, this morning, the news came that her remains, I mean, the, 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 the Hamas terrorists, that they burned and mutilated the bodies in such a way that until now they are still working to identify some of the victims. Mm -hmm. And just today we got the news that, that she, she was murdered mm. on, on the 7th of October. And, and, and now her supposed friends and allies in places like Cornell and Harvard, they celebrated her murder and said that, you know, the people who are to blame for it are only the Israeli government. Yeah. And yeah. this feels, you know, it not just betrayal, but almost gives you a sense of hopelessness. Yeah. It's, um... Maybe add one, one more thing to it. Yeah. That living now in Israel in the midst of, of, of this terrible conflict, so it's, Personally, when I look at myself, I look at my, my friends, the, the people I talked with, our, our minds are so full of pain that we now don't have theory of mind. We mm. now can't, can't relate to the pain of almost anybody else. Like you try in Israel now, you try to point out the pain and suffering of civilians in Gaza. Some people, people like Vivian Silver, if she was alive, they could relate to it. Most people feel it as a kind of, it's, it's intolerable for them. Mm -hmm. Anytime you take away attention from our pain and direct it at the pain of others, it feels in, like intolerable betrayal. And I'm sure it's the same with the Palestinians. That to try to talk right now to Palestinians, in, certainly in Gaza, also in the West Bank, also in Harvard, about the pain of Israelis, it's impossible. I mean, maybe some saints can do it, but most people, it's psychologically too difficult. So I don't expect it from them. But from people who are unrelated directly to the conflict, and especially who are supposed to be, again, the intellectual vanguard of the progressive world, they should be able to do it. They should be able to go beyond their simplistic narratives and to understand the pain and the tragic experiences of both sides, and most importantly, to try and work constructively. But we can't keep the, the hope for peace right now. It's the job 
of outsiders to keep the chance for peace and supporting Hamas <laughs> and celebrating the murder of Israeli civilians is not the way to keep the chance for peace. Hmm. What is the future of the left in Israel at this point? I, I, mean, I can imagine the betrayal of their supposed allies is part of the problem, but I, I would imagine the, the deeper issue is just a perception, a completely understandable perception, that security is all at this point, right? So the first order of business and the second and the third is for Israel to ensure that this sort of thing can't happen again. So what, what, what is your expectation for the, the politics of Israel going forward? I mean, let's say Netanyahu did resign in, in six months. Who would replace him and what would be the project uh, in the near term politically? Um, there are two main projects. Uh, one project is to unify the, the nation, to unify the country. After years of populist politics and divisive politics that set Israelis one against the other, the other project, which is, is, is deeply related to the issue of security, is to uh, restart the process of normalization and peace with the Arab world, including the Palestinians. Uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, I don't, I, at the present moment, it seems almost impossible. But I, I think it's, 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 it's necessary that the future of Israel depends on it. We cannot make peace with Hamas. Again, we should also set limit to, to uh, I don't know, uh, naive fantasies. They also lead to very dangerous places. You know, there are people who say that no matter what Israel does, they always blame it for whatever happens and say it needs to do more. This is a kind, a, a kind of extremism uh, which ignores empirical reality. You actually achieve peace in the world by making a step forward and see what the, result are, what the results are. If you make a step in the right direction, and in reaction you get a, a, a slap in the face, you don't repeat it. You, you go back. Now, with Hamas, it, it's been tried again and again and again. Uh, most importantly, Israel retreated from the entire Gaza Strip, mm -hmm. dismantled all the settlements that were there, took out all the military forces, returned to the 1967 border, also, Gaza is not under siege by Israel, as many people claim. It has a border with Egypt as well. There is a partial blockade as a result of what Hamas has been doing. And uh, this blockade is, is partial, as you can see from the fact that Hamas has built one of the most sophisticated fortresses in the world with foreign money and foreign material in Gaza. So it mm. got in there some, somehow. Uh, so I don't think that, you know, any talk about let's make peace with Hamas, this is a dangerous fantasy. This is what ruined the left in Israel. Mm -hmm. But we, we must have a different path to normalization and peace with the Arab world and, and the Palestinians. Israel is not strong enough and not big enough to just exist indefinitely as a fortress in war with everybody around it. Mm -hmm. We have to preserve the peace with Jordan and Egypt and the Emirates. We have to strive for peace with Saudi Arabia and also with the Palestinians. And again, I'm going back to what we talked about earlier, a figure like Mansour Abbas, uh, who, who is a leader of an Islamist party who was also a member of an Israeli democratic coalition, shows that it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. 
So a final question for you, Yuval. How does this become a much wider conflagration, and how do we avoid that? And obviously, there's the problem of Hezbollah, yeah. which is a you know arguably much bigger problem than the problem of Hamas, which is already intolerable. There's mm-hmm. the the alliance w- of both of those groups with Iran and the, the direct sponsorship of them by Iran. There's Iran's uh, alliance with Russia. Uh, how do we avoid World War Three here and mm-hmm. And keeping the prospect of World War III in mind, is there some wider conflict that you view as necessary? I mean, you, you, you've, you've agreed that destroying Hamas, in some basic sense, is necessary. Is destroying Hezbollah also necessary? And what does that look like? I, I, re- I recognize you're not, a, you're not a military strategist, but, mm-hmm. but I mean, how does this... It, it's so easy to see how this could become a much larger disaster. Yeah. But it's also easy to see that a partial solution to the current problem is going, to, in the end, to be another version of weakness being provocative and will invite some other intolerable attack upon Israel in the future. So just how strong does Israel and its allies need to be here through force, and how do we contain the damage? And I, I, I can't answer most of the questions mm-hmm. you raised because they, they demand an expertise that I don't have, or, or data that I don't have. Uh, again, I, I would say that Israel needs to be strong, but it also needs to be wise. You know, war is the continuation of politics by other means. Everybody is reciting it, but most people, even most politicians, don't pay attention to what it actually means, especially in the middle of a war. If Israel gains military victory over Hamas, but loses the ability, the chance, to make peace with Saudi Arabia, to normalize relations with the Arab world, and potentially with the Palestinians, then we lost the war. The political aim of Hamas is to destroy our all chance for peace. The political aim of Israel should be to preserve the chance for peace. Now, disarming Hamas is not revenge. Disarming Hamas is a necessary step in order to have peace. So if we disarm Hamas, but in a way which destroys peace, Hamas still won't. So we need to be strong mm-hmm. and we need to be wise at the same time. How to do it? Israel needs to work with its allies in the Arab world. We have allies in the Arab world. At, the pres- at, at present, they don't speak up because it's too dangerous for them. So they very often condemn Israel on television uh, openly, but under the table, they say to Israel, we are with you. Mm-hmm. So and uh, we need they're, they're hostage of their own populations, right? I mean, the, so the, the rulers hate Hamas. To some extent, yes. To some yeah. extent, yes. We need to, to find ways to prevent a huge escalation of this conflict, which could eventually even get to a third world war. Uh, there are scenarios. You know, in, in 1914, at the end of June, on the 28th, I think, of June 1914, when the Archduke Ferdinand was murdered, people in, in London didn't think that it would get to them. Oh, something happened in the Balkans, yes. They didn't think it's about them. It was about them. It can mm-hmm. happen in the, same, in the same way here. So far, what we've seen is, I think, a really admirable intervention by the Biden administration, which, like with Ukraine, also with the Middle East, I think Biden proves himself or his team proves themselves to be one of the best 
administrations, at least in terms of foreign policies, that the U.S. had in a long, long time. And, you know, lots of people criticize Biden for being old. But I think the fact that he's very experienced and he has been around during the Cold War is now a huge asset. He's mm. a Cold Warrior. He's seen things that most people forget, for, forgot or, or never experienced. And his use of military force in recent weeks, I don't know what will happen tomorrow or, or tonight, but until now, his use of military force seems to have been admirable. You know, people often criticize military force as a horrible thing. It kills people, it causes wars, but we've now seen military force being used to contain and de-escalate a conflict uh, using massive military force. Two aircraft carriers with lots of other ships and warplanes and soldiers whose aim is to de-escalate a conflict and to contain it and to preserve a chance for normalization and peace. I, I've, I, I think the keys to the situation are in Washington and to some extent in Riyadh. And I very much hope that the people there will continue to make uh, wise decisions and help Israel be not only strong, but also wise enough mm. to come out, out of this terrible conflict, not just as a more united nation, but also with a nation, as, as a nation more committed to peace. One more question here, Yuvali, just provoked yes, by your answer. I think many people in America in particular have drawn a lesson from our, you know, our recent misadventures in war that um, it's undesirable to have the U.S. project power of the sort that you just praised as mm -hmm. being really indispensable in the current moment, right? So we, we've drawn the lesson from Afghanistan and Iraq that nation building is just the graveyard for fools. And yeah. all of that sacrifice of, of lives, both American and allied and indigenous in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, it, it was just a, a completely fatuous misuse of resources. and. Therefore, there should, we should embrace a new period of isolationism, essentially, where we just mm -hmm. to withdraw within our borders, we prioritize our own needs. And I mean, this is a very Trumpian populist yeah. attitude, but it's shared by many, many smart people who wouldn't really consider themselves susceptible to Trumpism, certainly not, not in its coarsest form. But still, the, the spirit of the time is we have to put these pointless wars behind us. And they, I think many people view the current moment in Israel as an invitation to further misadventures in the world. Well, like we're, we're, yeah. we're going to be we're lured into a, con a, a hot war with Iran because we couldn't figure out how to keep our, our missiles out of the current contest. But I, mm -hmm. I'm anticipating what you think here, but I, I, I do view American weakness as provocative here, and that you know yeah. that, that our with, our ignominious withdrawal from Afghanistan, as much as I, I think we had to get out of Afghanistan eventually, the manner in which we did it was almost certainly provocative mm -hmm. to many of our enemies. And I just think the the unraveling of the global liberal order is something that only America really could help prevent here, if if anyone could. And so 
this is a bit of a tightrope walk because I do I, I do view Afghanistan and Iraq certainly as just you know misbegotten wars in the end. I mean, we just failed so utterly to do anything useful there that was that, that was durable, however useful it might have looked for a period. So, how do we re- reinstate something like a global liberal order and maintain it? And and so, what is the appropriate posture of power here, specifically American power? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we need to understand what the aim of the project is. That it should be, I think, a conservative aim of preserving order and not a kind of, I don't know, more extreme aim of nation building or democracy building or or spreading democracy to places where people don't seem particularly keen on it. The focus should be not on what is happening within nations, even though this is, of course, important but about the rules of the game, the rules of behavior between nations. So far, there have been many attacks on the global liberal order, but, and, and it definitely had a lot of problems, but I haven't heard a single alternative to it. Hmm. That, okay, the, the global liberal order is based on the idea that all people and all nations, despite their cultural, religious, and political difference, they nevertheless have some shared interests, which are based ultimately on our shared experiences as human beings. That all humans, you know, love their parents and children and suffer from pain and so forth. Based on these universal experiences, there are universal values, there are universal interests, which should, should, should be the basis for organizing relations between different nations. Now, the people who attacked all these ideas of universal values and international rules, they had many good arguments, but no alternative. Hmm. Their vision of the world seemed to be something like a network of friendly fortresses, that each nation will just retreat within itself and within its own national traditions and will take care only of its own interests, and they will live side by side. And they never explained how exactly will they relate to one another. With, you know, fortresses, the main problem about fortresses is that fortresses are almost never friendly. Each fortress always wants more territory, more prosperity, more respect to itself at the expense of the neighbors. So how do you balance this? And what kind of rules will manage relations between the different nations? And all the critics of the liberal order, from Trump or Viktor Orban or, or uh, uh, Putin, they, they don't have any alternative suggestion. Now, the only alternative, other alternative to the liberal order is simply disorder. If you dismantle an order and you don't offer an alternative, you get disorder. And we saw it in Ukraine. We now see it here. We will see it in more and more places. I hope that the United States and other countries will not give up on the attempt to preserve order, because if they do, they too will suffer from it. Maybe not immediately, but in five years or ten years, it will eventually reach everywhere. We now live in a global world with lots of global problems, whether it's climate change or the rise of AI, or potential for nuclear war. We have a, a global economic system which cannot be completely deglobalized. So the only real alternative to to order will be disorder. Isolationism 
will not work. Now, again, it doesn't mean that the US or other countries need to embark on these failed attempts at nation buildings and don't try, or very difficult to try and tell a different people how to manage their internal affairs. But uh, we should have some kind of management of how nations relate to each other. And if the basic rules are broken, for instance, with Putin trying to conquer and obliterate Ukraine from the map, then you need to intervene or this will spread. And mm. this will happen in more and more areas around the world. And, you know, defense budgets all over the world will skyrocket and you will have much worse wars, whether you like it or not. Mm. So both in Ukraine and also now in Israel, so far, I think, again, Ukraine is a very different story from Iraq or Afghanistan. In yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan, the US provided a lot of military assistance, a lot of boots on the ground. It seemed it didn't have any allies willing to fight for the ideals of, of a liberal democracy in these places. In Ukraine, you do have a people, a nation, fighting very bravely for their freedom and for their continued existence as a liberal democracy and as a member of the European community. They mostly need arms. They don't need soldiers. And this, I think, compared to Iraq and Afghanistan, has been a much, much more successful intervention. The same now with Israel. Again, I don't know what will happen in the future. But as of today, I think there are important fruits for the American intervention in de-escalating the conflict and preventing a potential regional war. I hope this will continue. Well, Yuval, I, I can say that um, in addition to the pleasure of getting your voice here again on the podcast, uh, I have to note um, that one of the consequences of global disorder is that you and I never have time to talk about our shared interest in meditation <laughs> and the nature of mind. So it's going to have to wait for um, a period in history where um, we don't have other more pressing things to talk about. But uh, thank you for your time. It's fantastic. Even though, I mean, I, I would say for, for a few more seconds, mm -hmm. But it's, it's always important to take care of, of our mind, yeah, yeah. especially in times of war. I mean, the war now, and that I'm part of, is a war on the mind. What Hamas yeah. did on the 7th of October, and these terrible atrocities, and filming these atrocities and spreading the videos, this was a war on the mind. Mm -hmm. And what we are seeing all over the world now also is, is a war on, on the mind of millions of people. So it's, it's, it's not a different subject. No. We need to protect our minds, especially in times of war. I mean, that's the, that's the amazing thing to recognize, that everything, all of the pointless destruction and, and risk of further destruction we're talking about is a symptom of human minds being out of control and just, yeah. just a, a completely destructive relationship that everyone has to their own thoughts. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing what a, what a dream we're living out the consequences of. But um, to be continued, Yuval, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm,